You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. So. <laughs> Welcome. Vaccines. What's up with them? What's up with that? Welcome to Chelsea and Grace's Vaccination Station. We are administering vaccines um, out of the comfort of our own apartments. Not FDA approved, but come on by. A little extra boost. A little love. Yes, just put a little bit more love in your bloodstream, if you know what I'm saying. Give us a call. We are accepting monetary donations. I could never inject anything into anyone. Actually, no, I... If someone needed me to, I could, but it's hard for my brain to wrap around. I don't even want to get into it because I'm going to sound dumb, but it's like you just put something underneath your skin and it just like flows in your bloodstream. That's how it works, baby. That's not how it seemed to work in the Rugrats episode I watched where they go into Chucky's body. It's not. Yeah, no. Um, Or in all the Magic School Bus episodes where What's-Her-Face took them into people's bodies without their consent. Miss Frizz? Yeah. Miss Frizz, no way! Do 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 Exactly. Well, welcome to our magic school bus. This is Two Girls, One Crossword, your favorite weekly podword crosscast. I'm Chelsea Rowan. If you hear my dog moaning, um, he's he's here with me today. Me and my dog. And I'm Grace Topinka. And if you hear my cat meowing, it's because he thinks he wants to go out in the hallway but he doesn't know what he wants he thinks he wants to go out there and then i let him out and then he immediately gets scared and comes back in so that's pets for them for you for y'all y'all folks here joining us today um <laughs> should we just jump into should we our just move oh, on yes let's let's move on from this uh whatever we call this section what is this the opener the, the opener be- that we mess up every time i mean how many times can our listeners actually put up with a failed opening attempt i mean I feel like calling an opener is being a little generous yeah no i'm being extremely generous right now <laughs> well i can go take us into a more structured section please um, because i really liked the poll we did on polapalooza Ooh, it was a good one Yes. So we asked our Twitter followers, get in, we're going blank hunting. Choose your own adventure. And the options were Yeti, which was our topic from last week, one of them, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Ooh. Monster, who we've also covered, mm-hmm. and the Chupacabra, whom oh we've also covered we way have. back in the day, if you've been with us since then. Ooh. So Who's it was the winner? A, well, it was neck and neck for first and <gasps> second. Okay. So at 37%, uh, Chupacabra won. I am shocked. I'm actually shocked. Why? Well, okay. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more why I think that is. 36%, though, right behind Loch Ness Monster. Okay. Um, Bigfoot, 18%. And then the Yeti was 9%. Now, no shade okay. for the Yeti, because that was my topic last week. But Yeti hunting sounds really cold. Yes. And deadly. Um, Literally. Like, people yes. die on the mountain. Bigfoot is kind of boring if you live in North America, because it's like, we're, I don't want to take a vacation in North America. But Loch Ness right. Monster... You get to go to Scotland, and mm-hmm. then Chupacabra, you get to go to South America. So mm-hmm. I feel like maybe that's why those two won out, and also interesting monsters. I think so, too. And I think I would vote for Nessie mm-hmm. because it seems like the least dangerous, the the most leisurely experience to just kind of hop on a boat, see what's going on. True. We don't have any reports of Nessie killing people, right? We have reports of the Chup- 
chupacabra killing people. I feel like chupacabra hunting would be hard, too, because it's not like, oh, just go to this one spot. Right. Loch Ness Monster, it's like you go to the lake, you see her, or you don't. Right. Chupacabra. I would bring, like, a bottle of whiskey, get on the boat, and start screaming, Nessie! And she would come, clearly, because that's how it works. Yeah. Well, that's a Palooza for you. Should Thank we you. jump into our next section let's get let's get into the hits and the shits from the past week why don't why don't i open up my notes here well i'll start us off with a shit that you may have chosen too because um, we've talked about this before this from the new york times wednesday april 22nd by brandon copy 42 mm. across fashion icon with a numbered fragrance the answer was coco chanel the nazi yes that I we're mean, done with Coco Chanel and the crossword. She's out. Sorry. Move I mean, on. not sorry. Just like, let's move on. You know, we just don't put Nazis in crosswords in the 21st century. So at least not my crosswords, you know, the millions of crosswords I've constructed across my lifetime. So, if I made a crossword, would not put it in. She's done. Officially done. Um, yeah. What else? What else do I got going on here? Um Speaking of, okay, monsters, I just want to mm-hmm. do a couple shout outs. Nessie did make an appearance in the crosswords this week. Uh, Amy Lucido had a puzzle in the New Yorker on April 23rd. It was a Wednesday. Five down. And we also talked about this specific word, cryptozoological nickname. And the answer was Nessie. So yes. Nessie is short for the Loch Ness monster, right? And Grace and I had talked last week about what you call people who search for these like creatures and beasts and we were like butchering obviously the title but it's cryptozoology mm-hmm. cryptozoologists and i did that puzzle normally do the new yorkers together but i didn't this week but i did do it separately and i knew that when i saw that i was like i actually know what that is Ooh! and if you're interested in learning about nessie check out episode 56 it's called blue-eyed monster we talk about the loch ness monster and none other than barbie herself so head over it's a good one um another monster representation in the puzzles this week was from the april 22nd new york times adam wagner puzzle okay and this is something grace and i have been talking about for it feels like for years at this point okay 67 across fiona or shrek ogre and the answer was ogre and this is one of the first times that i have noticed that ogre has not been clued as some kind of like evil monster mm-hmm. we're bringing the clues into the 21st century folks we're re-imaging what ogres are um and i'm loving it i'm here for it so thank you adam for that ogre representation the ogre pr team did not come out with four shrek movies for us <laughs> to still be cluing ogres as monsters okay they okay. they reclaimed their image they're back they're better than ever do not sleep on ogres. Okay. So, yeah, that, that's what I got. <laughs> well, speaking of Amy Lucido's puzzle, The New Yorker, Wednesday, April 21st, there was a lot of clues in there that I liked. I'm just going to go through them. They're amazing. We always love her puzzles. Yes. 23 down, focus on the trees rather than the forest. Myopia, because that's like being um, nearsighted, mm-hmm. I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, 14 across, like many Netflix shows, bingeable. Yes. 23 across, Imagination, Mind's Eye, mm-hmm. which it was Mind Palace, but that's fine. Um, but yeah, just some fun clues that I feel like I I don't see very often in other mm-hmm. crosswords. The fill and the cluing. So yes. shout out to Amy. We love you. Always. We love you, Amy. I loved the, um, 
like Netflix shows or whatever that clue was and bingeable. It's so mm-hmm. relatable, like I think not only in quarantine, but in general, right? It, shows used to not be bingeable. And I don't mean like just because we physically couldn't binge them because they weren't, you know, you didn't have the box set of the OC or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like our culture has changed to the point where you absolutely expect to have all episodes readily available before you sit down and actually watch a show. I've started noticing that Netflix does these um, new episodes every week. They do these kind of releases. And I'm like, I'm not starting that. I like absolutely refuse to start that until all episodes are available because what, you expect me to wait for content? Absolutely not. I will sit down and watch 16 hours worth of this TV show, though. So let's speed this process up. Not me. Sometimes I watch shows the old-fashioned way. I mean, I watch The Masked Singer, but I'm not going to talk about The Masked Singer. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that. She wants to talk about it so bad, Grace. You can talk about it. Nobody's going to judge you. It's fine. I'd rather talk about the Friday New York Times puzzle, April 23rd, by Robin Weintraub. Oh, Another... I didn't get to do this one yet. But please, tell me. No. Spoil it for me. Well, there were just some fun fill and clues, I thought. Five down, event that goes all night, sleepover party. <gasps> oh, God. Um, 61 across, person who's really sweet and soft, a teddy bear. Oh, it should have been like the Pillsbury Doe person. I just, I mean, teddy bear could have been clued by so many things. So I like that mm-hmm. she did it with a person. But this was probably my favorite, the opener, one across, give some badly needed help, question mark, a bets. Because it's help, but it is bad help. Very good. Mm-hmm. I love a good opener. Speaking of good openers, I think there's a couple really lovely openers this week. Um and there goes my dog just moaning. Please just bear with me here. Um, my favorite opener was from Friday, April 16th, New York Times by Tom Pepper, which is an incredible last name and also in a great dog dog name. Like if you had like a chocolate lab, you could name them Pepper. Hello, salt and pepper, get a white dog, black dog. Okay, anyway, but a chocolate lab? You mean a black what? lab? Sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. <laughs> Okay. Well, <laughs> you have a black lab in your family named Hershey, so we'll talk about that later. Anyway, so Mr. Tom Pepper with the incredible last name, the opener for his puzzle was one across game on an erasable court. And the answer was hopscotch. Mm-hmm. That was a good one. I that liked took me that a little a bit to get. Um, I actually got it right away and I felt really, really smart. Wow. Anyway, you not to like flex, smart. but you know. Another great opener from the New York Times this week was from the Saturday, the 17th, by Leslie Rogers, one across, colorful Pillsbury cake with a portmanteau name. Funfetti. Funfetti. Isn't that awesome? Oh, I didn't realize. I'm going to use Funfetti as my example when I explain what a portmanteau is, because I always use smog. Right. Or like Merce, which I hate using Merce as an example. But Funfetti, is that a portmanteau? Because this doesn't abbreviate fun. It's like fun and confetti, I guess, Funfetti. Or funny confetti. Right. Is the cake funny? Uh, My last favorite opener from the week is not from New York Times. It's from the WAPO. You know, Evan Bernholz, Sunday, April 18th. One across. Expert on labor pains? Question mark. And the answer was marks. Mm -hmm. You'd love to see it. Um, So good. (laughs) I also liked from that puzzle, 20 across, channel that might be blocked by a ship. It was a canal. (laughs) I just felt like it was nice and topical. It really did. I was like, I really wish I could have just filled in Suez just because that would have been even more fun. Um, I really liked the theme from the Waypo this weekend. 
I always love the themes, but this one was a lot of fun. Essentially, the clues were, or rather, hmm, how would you describe this? I don't remember what so the theme es- was. Essentially, it would be clued as something like bovine college, question mark. Um, but it was, the answer had a company that was actually removed from it. So let me just give you some of my favorites. 47 across was bovine college, question mark. And the answer was Ox University. But later on in the puzzle, there was a connected answer. And it said something like, company removed from 47 across. And the answer was Ford. So Ox University was actually Oxford University. So you had these two clues kind of working in tandem in tandem with each other, which was nice. Another example, 88 across, rodents that express favorable opinions. And the answer was approval rats. Nice. But then there was a later clue related to it, company removed from 88 across, and it was ING. So the phrase, the full phrase would be approval ratings. Yes, I now I'm remembering, and I did enjoy that too, once I figured out what it was. Right, right, right. My favorite from that was 117 across last spring, question mark. And the answer was closing hop. And the company removed was UPS. So it was closing up shop. Very good. I love closing hop as your last spring. I love that too. Very good. What else you got for me? That's all. That's it and that's all? All right. Okay. 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 I'm going to, I got a couple more that I'm going to, you know, put on your radar. Okay. Um, the Friday, April 16th, New Yorker by Anna Schechtman, 38 across, title for Doug Emhoff, as of 2021, and the answer was First Gentleman, mm-hmm. right smack dab in the center of the puzzle, all the way across, just beautiful to see it, mm-hmm. okay? And I wanted to ask you a question about this one. 65 across, in quotes, you get the idea, and the answer was dot, dot, dot. And to me, dot, dot, dot doesn't really suggest, like, you get the idea. Dot, dot, dot to me is, like, kind of ominous. And But I've also found that by working in, like, we don't necessarily work in, like, a corporate setting, but it's not, you know, not a corporate setting. But I found that the older people that I work with use dot, dot, dot all the time, you know, in ellipses to mean, like, you know what I'm saying, et cetera. And I'm like... To me, if you say, okay, dot, 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 I'm like, are we on ice? Are we not talking right now? (laughs) Well, I feel like these are two different things. I think in the clue they mean if you're like, you know, the animals at the zoo, elephants, monkeys, giraffes, donkeys, dot, dot, dot. Okay. Okay. It's kind of using more in place of et cetera, which I think some people do. I would probably use et cetera, but that's me. And don't listen to me because I'm an idiot. (laughs) Yeah, I'm also an idiot. So you can also ignore me. But that's just like a personal thing. Anytime I see dot, dot, dot after a word, I immediately think that you're trailing off because you've got something else in your mind and you're like feeling like there's tension between us. You know, I do feel like dot, dot, dot in emails can be um, ominous. Also, like, I feel like parents use it a lot in texts as well. Or my dad will be like, okay, period. I'm like, you're mad? But that's just, (laughs) he does everything. All his texts are like that. Right. Um, What else did I like? What else did I like? Oh, did you do the Thursday, April 22nd New York Times by Jem Birch? Yes. Okay. Um, The theme itself, like the topic was James Bond. Mm -hmm. And like, there was rebuses with double O in it so for 007 and the rebuses of the double o's spelled out or not spelled out but like 
were in the shape of a seven. Right. And, you know, the theme content itself is, like, not something that I was, like, dying for. You know, I don't really care about James Bond. But I did like that when you solved it on the website, I'm not sure how it looked on the app, but after you finished the puzzle, it did, like, a nice little seven animation, which was Yeah, fun. it did on the app, too. And then it kept doing it when I was, like, trying to look through to see which, like, okay, which ones <laughs> did I like? I'm like, just stop moving so I can <laughs> see which clues I liked. Right. Um Another thing I just wanted to point out, in case people didn't know, but there has not been ever a white, or sorry, a black or person of color um, James Bond, or Mm -hmm. a woman James Bond. But there is a new James Bond film coming out this year called, what's it called? Um, No Time to Die. (laughs) And Daniel Craig is playing James Bond as 007, but I think spoiler alert i don't know if you care about this stuff but he retires or something and there is a new recruit in the mi6 who is going to since 007 as a title is retiring Mm -hmm. she can then take over that 007 title but she will not be called james bond or jamie bond or jenna bond or any of that i think her character name is like nomi or numi um and she's played by uh lashana lynch which is it's kind of exciting to see a woman 007 and a black Mm -hmm. 007 but i also think it's kind of like cheap to you know say we can't have you actually be james bond it's kind of like you know they won't give the role to idris elba because james bond can't be black and it just really pisses me off to see that this is like they're trying to be inclusive by also you know, skirting around the actual issue. You know what I mean? I wonder who made that final choice not to have her name James Bond. I think it'd be awesome to have a woman named James Bond. Um, I just like James for a woman, but... I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you. Um, But yeah. I might actually see that then. Yeah, she looks really freaking cool in the the trailer. Um, Check it out if that's something you're interested in. But I just wanted to... brought to you by... (laughs) No Time to Die. Sponsored by (laughs) Samsung. (laughs) (laughs) oh anyway we are accepting monetary donations like i said no i'm kidding um yeah so that's that's what i got for hits and shits this week are those okay well before we get into the coin flip we want to let everyone know to stay tuned until the very end of the episode because we have an exciting interview with Haley gold she is the author of letters to margaret which is a crossword themed graphic novel with interactive crosswords that you can do while reading along. It's very exciting. Um, So stay tuned for that. It's at the end of the show. But until then, we will flip the coin. Ooh, definitely stay tuned. But it is time to flip the coin. All right. All right, listeners. What's it called? The the coin flip. We're going to do it. The coin is flipping, my friends. It's going to start flipping right now. It's heads. It's you. See, we're I haven't gone track. first in a long, long time. I am happy to be here. I am happy to be here. Sit down, please. Stop clapping. Anyway, um, <laughs> I'll just yeah. relax for the first <laughs> bit now. My topic this week comes from the Tuesday, April 20th USA Today puzzle by Brooke Husick and Matthew Stock. Again, another great opener. One across, a leap one is 366. Year? 
the answer is year. So we're going to be talking about leap years and leap day days, um, which I can't think is kind of thematic because I talked about uh, daylight saving time. Mm-hmm. These are not related. I mean, they're related in that they talk about time and like the construct of time and how people try to, you know, stay in sync and manipulate how they time. manipulate time and how they try to kind of like just like exist within time. Right. So we're talking about leap years today. I almost had like a mini panic attack. I was like, wait, I did leap year, but I didn't. I just mentioned it in my uh, Sadie Hawkins dance episode. Briefly. That's right. Right. Um, we're going to get a little deeper today. Um, okay. So leap years are also known as intercalary years or, and I love this one, bisextal years. Yeah. So yes, leap years are on the LGBTQ spectrum. I'm claiming it here. <laughs> If you're born on a leap year, you're automatically queer. Um, it is what it is. It is what it is. Anyway, so that's some additional names you could call them if you're interested. Uh, leap years are calendar years that contain an additional day. And they contain this additional day in order to keep what we call our calendar year, like the year that we as humans follow, in sync with the astronomical year. Okay. So you might think that it takes an even 365 for the earth to you know circle the sun that is not true okay you've been lied to it actually takes 365.2421 days for the earth to make the full orbit around the sun which means like after a time our calendar year will be a little out of sync with the astronomical year so by inserting an additional day into the year we can kind of correct that out of syncness, that drifting away from the calendar, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, imagine if we didn't have a leap year. We'd be, like, you know, weeks behind. It, months, years, who knows? Actually, I do know. So, just yeah, before ask, we... Cause, well, I don't know when leap year started, <laughs> so I'm not sure, like, how far back we have to go. She doesn't know, and she's about to find out. Okay, but just to clarify, before I hop into the details... I'll be talking mostly within the construct of the Gregorian calendar, Mm -hmm. which is what we follow in the United States. And most countries in the world follow the Gregorian calendar to some extent. Um, But that's not to say that every country or religion or, you know, group of people follows the Gregorian calendar. Some countries that follow the Gregorian calendar also follow other calendars to some extent. So traditional calendars or religious calendars. Mm -hmm. If I'm talking about a different calendar, I will let you all know. You better believe it. Okay. So fine. What is the Gregorian calendar? It was introduced in October 1582 by some guy named Pope Gregory VIII. Okay, whoever this guy is. Some dude. Some dude. Uh, And the Gregorian calendar was introduced to modify the calendar that came before, which is known as the Julian calendar. You, A lot of people know about these differences, right? But Mm -hmm. we're going to talk about them. One of the main reasons we switched from the Julian to the Gregorian calendar was because the Julian calendar incorrectly calculated that the average solar year or astronomical year is exactly 365.25 days, which is an overestimate. Because if you remember what I just said, an actual trip around the sun is 365.2421. It seems like a very small difference. And, you know, it is. But in the grand scheme of time, baby, it is not small at all. That will catch up to you. It's going to catch up. Mm -hmm. 
So the Gregorian reform, when we switched to the Gregorian calendar, shortened the average calendar year by 0.0075 days to stop the continued drift that the Julian calendar was kind of like making happen, right? Mm -hmm. Within the Julian calendar, we actually did have leap years. It was a cycle of three normal years and one leap year. Um, Their math was a little off, like I said, which means that if you were to follow the Julian calendar, every 128 days you would gain an extra day of time, Mm -hmm. which is like, you're like, okay, what the hell does that mean? From the year, if you were to use the Julian calendar from the year 1901 to 2099, the Julian calendar would be 13 days behind a corresponding Gregorian calendar. So there's a 13-day difference within 100 years. Yeah. Okay. It might not not seem that 0.0075 of a miscalculation is that bad, but like I said, a 13-day difference between the two calendar systems. Um, And as I'm sure you can imagine, that would create lots of issues. And one of the big issues specifically that made Pope Gregory want to, like, switch things up and, like, fix it Mm -hmm. is that the Easter holiday kept falling later and later and later and later in the year. And he was like, Mm -hmm. this isn't lining up with what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to line up with this sunset at this equinox and blah, 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 blah. And it wasn't working anymore. And so he's like, we have to fix it. Okay. The Gregorian calendar follows a leap year cycle of four normal years, which have 365 days, and one leap year that has 366 days. And this calendar system keeps the solar year nearly equal with our calendar year. It is not by any means perfect, but it is very, very close, much closer than the Julian calendar. So what does that mean? At the rate, like if we continue to follow the Gregorian calendar, which is the plan, Mm -hmm. it will take 3,300 years for the Gregorian calendar to move a single day out of sync with the solar year. And then people 3,000 years from now can deal with that. Yes, exactly. Actually, there's articles online like, what happens when we get to that point? And it's like, well, they'll figure it out. It's like, first of all, the planet won't be here then. So it's actually not even an issue. Right. Let's stop thinking about it and just like enjoy our TikToks, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like if we made it 3,300 more years, who knows? Mm-hmm. I just feel like they'll just like delete one of the days and just start over with the Gregorian calendar again. Like, why not? Like, every 4,000 years, just delete a day and start over. This is me with literally zero mathematical training, astronomical training, anything. You're a scientist, as far as I'm concerned. That sounds like a great idea to me. I don't see anything wrong with it. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Sometimes the easiest solution is the answer. There we go. So back to the Gregorian calendar and the Gregorian leap year. Historically, the Gregorian leap year would actually fall on February 24th. Well, it wouldn't fall on February 24th. What they would do is they would just duplicate February 24th. They'd be like, okay, we're going to do it again, like Groundhog's Day, right? You mm-hmm. know, just you wake up and it's the 24th again. Um, but it is now accepted to keep the days in February entirely sequential by adding leap day to the end of the month, so February 29th. Um, there are actually rules for when leap years occur. I did not know this. This was shocking to me, okay? So here are the rules. A leap year must be divisible by four. So that's the first rule. So think 2016, 2020, and 2024. Mm-hmm. Okay. Except, except if it's divisible by 100. 
So 1900, 2100, and 2200. These years would be skipped. We would skip that as a leap year. It just wouldn't happen. Oh. Okay. I mean, I guess, I guess the scientists worked that all out. <laughs> they, they worked it all out. They know what they're talking about. But then there's even an exception to that rule. Okay. Uh-huh. Ex- so it can't be divisible by 100, except if it is also divisible by 400. So the year 2000 and the year 2400. Okay. So, I see you know, if you're interested in whether or not we're skipping a leap year, you can either do the math yourself or you can Google it. Is there a website that's like, are we skipping a leap year this year? You know how they have one that's like, is Mercury in retrograde? It just says yes or no. <laughs> Actually, I don't think there is a website, so we should make that website. because, And then we could just like leave it up after we're dead. That'd be great. If I knew how to do that, I would. Just get like a Wix site or something. Okay, but I'm not paying for it. No, we'll get the free version. It'll be like, okay, okay. is this, do we skip leap year this year? Wix.com. Okay. Cool. We can we'll, take we'll this. Patreon donations and like, you know. That feeds the, the subscription. Anyway, we're workshopping it. We'll figure it out. So yeah, that's like what, you know, you need the rules to follow in order for it to be a leap year. Let's talk a little bit about other historical leap year situations or people trying to manipulate time throughout history. So civilizations throughout history have tried many different calendar systems to keep themselves in sync with the astronomical year. Um, most of them have failed. Okay, that's why we are all now on the Gregorian calendar. It starts with, you know, early Egyptians and others from China and even Rome. They used lunar calendars to track time. But here's the deal. Lunar months averaged 29.5 days. And so the year would actually only be 354 days long. So societies that kept lunar time quickly drifted well out of sync with the seasons, and they would actually have an 11-day lag. So they'd be like 11 days behind where they should have been Mm -hmm. and the egyptians they actually knew something was wrong they were like something's not lining up here so to compensate for like the differentiation they just threw on a shit ton of festivals and parties at the end of their year to kind of make up for the lag for following (laughs) the lunar schedule (laughs) i mean let's have a shortened year and just have like three weeks worth of partying I really feel like we should get leap day off every year. It's like an extra day, and you get to do whatever you want to do with that extra day. It's yours. Ooh, you know, we could probably champion for that at our job. If we got my boss behind it, we could. <laughs> we might have some luck. Every four years, one extra day off. I love it. We'll workshop that, too. Mm-hmm. Another ancient civilization, the Sumerians, they simply divided their years into 12 months, and each month had 30 days. So they had 360-day years, which was nearly a week shorter than what actually happens to get you around the sun. Mm -hmm. By the time Julius Caesar was emperor of Rome, the Roman lunar calendar had diverged with the seasons by approximately three months. That's crazy. They're three months off. To correct this, Caesar adopted a single 445-day-long year known as the Year of Confusion, and this happened in 46 BCE. Sounds extremely confusing. But after that very long year, he mandated years be 365.25 days long with a leap day added every fourth year. So this is the first ever systematic um, leap year situation Mm -hmm. in European culture, which is kind of cool. 
why do you think the calendar system we followed before the Gregorian calendar was called the Julian calendar? Well, because Julius Caesar Because Julius Caesar made it up. So yeah, of the ancient world, we can thank Caesar for laying the blueprint for what we now know as the Gregorian calendar. Um, So yeah, and then you fast forward from Caesar to the 16th century and you have Pope Gregory all upset that Caesar and his like astronomers got the math wrong. Mm-hmm. Caesar was like 365.25 and Greg's astronomers were like it's actually 365.2421 so I'm just imagining like the Pope today caring about astronomy so much <laughs> I feel like that job description has really changed over it time. really has <laughs> he's t- I don't know about this Pope but most of the Popes in the recent years were more worried about like their Gucci slippers and stuff you know I don't think they're wearing gucci slippers i think or versace something like that yeah is that a lie am i making that i think it's true it could be true (laughs) i don't know they're more more worried about telling people that you know if they don't act on their gay impulses then they're not sinners but if they do act on them but then we still love them i I don't know the new guys saying we still love them but they're still going to hell (laughs) because you're supposed to love sinners even though they're going to hell so that's fun. I actually I don't know what the current uh I actually think that's is. what it is. <laughs> okay. Well, I don't um, want to say anything wrong because I don't know. You can come for me, don't come for Grace. Yeah. Um getting away from the popes and whether or not they hate gay people. Um mm-hmm. if you're wondering why February is the month that we actually get that extra day, it's because when Julius and his his astronomers were trying to like figure out the calendar, February was the last month of their year, so they just tacked it on to that month. And uh that's it. I also read an interesting fact, and I do not know, I did not verify this, but I'm going to tell it to y'all anyway. If you're interested, Google it yourself. But the Roman emperor after Caesar was Augustus, okay? Mm-hmm. And February had 30 days like the rest of the months in the Roman year. Um, but Augustus was like, eh, I hate Caesar. And so what he did is he took ex- he took days off of Caesar's month, February. So that he could have more days in his month than Caesar. He did it as like a, he was kind of salty. Mm. I mean, Caesar was killed by, you know, the senators, which we talk about in a different episode. So, yeah. So, yeah. Now I'm going to talk to you about some leap day traditions, you know, get into mm-hmm. some fun. I think the most famous Western leap year tradition everybody knows about is it's known as Bachelor's Day. Um, and it happens on leap day, February 29th, every four years. The story goes that St. Bridget in the 5th century was upset that women were not allowed to propose to men. So she complained to St. Patrick, as you do. Uh, And so St. Patrick designed, or designated rather, that the only day that women are allowed to propose to men is on the day that doesn't happen annually, which is Leap Day. Um, (laughs) So thank you, St. Patrick, for being a misogynist. It's all good. Um... That's probably not true because at the time, St. Bridget was like five years old or something like that. So they don't think that that's true. It's just some sort Mm -hmm. of folklore thing passed through the ages, right? I think we talked about this too at some point, maybe. Well, yeah, this is what I talked about in my. No, it was from my Sadie Hawkins because that's like the dance where the girl asks the guy. So I think I talked about it with that. Right. Um, I couldn't remember if it was that or if it was St. Valentine or whatever, but Mm -hmm. okay, Sadie Hawkins. In Denmark, Uh, If you turn down a leap day proposal, you must give the woman 12 pairs of gloves, uh, supposedly so that the spurned maiden can wear them to hide the horror of not having a ring. (laughs) 
It's a lot of gloves. Lots I guess of gloves. one for every month. Yes, probably. Um, and one of my favorite like trash movies to watch is actually Leap Year, starring Amy Adams and Matthew Good. I truly love this movie. I've mm-hmm. rented it. I don't know how many times. Oh my god, Grace! If you're ever down to watch a crappy romance movie, we should watch that one. It's so I've bad seen it and on my so docket, good. But I've never watched it. Oh, it's so good. I would rewatch it with you immediately. Um, okay, moving on. If you were born on Leap Day, you are known as a leapling or a leaper. Love that. Um, about five million people in the entire world were born on February 29th, and the odds of this happening is one in every 1,461 people. So, I would love to be born on Leap Day. I would talk about it constantly. My friend's grandma was born on Leap Day. She's like, my grandma's only 14 or whatever. You know? Right. <laughs> I, I, I would also love to be born on Leap Day, but that would also mean that you're a Pisces. So, I'm sorry. I don't want to be a Pisces, but that's just hey. my Aquarius talking. Pisces is my oppo. I know. Sorry. I know. I, I really hope that you find a good Pisces in your life. I have animosity towards Pisces just because, you know, mm-hmm. we're right next to each other in the zodiac. Anyway. It's like a Aquarius Pisces thing. You wouldn't get it. I get it. It's like a Virgo Leo thing. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, there's also all these superstitions that leap year can bring you bad luck. So let's talk about some of these. In Greece, apparently it's bad luck to marry during a leap year, especially on leap day, as your marriage will end in divorce. Okay. Think about that. Think about that. In Scotland, it's said that if you are born on leap day, you will have a life of untold suffering. Oh. Woof. Also in Scotland, leap year is apparently bad for, like, bad years for livestock. There's a saying that goes, leap year was never a good sheep year, (laughs) which I have literally no reason to use that, but I will try to find a way to use that every day, because I love that. Get that on a shirt. (laughs) Actually, yes. Um, And then in Taiwan, it's thought that parents are more likely to die during a leap year. So in order to prevent this, children will go home during the leap month. And make a dish called pig trotter noodles, which is supposed to bring parents good health and fortune. I bet your parents made that up just to get their kids to come visit them. <laughs> They're like, it's a leap year, you know what that right? means. <laughs> come on home. Um, one last fun thing. There is a French newspaper, first published in 1980, and it only publishes once every four years on leap day. It's called La Bougie du Sapeur. Uh, and it is the least frequently published newspaper in the world. Uh, and according that. to NPR, the paper sells around 150,000 copies every time it's published, surpassing most of the daily newspapers in France. So, yeah. That They're is mood. smart. Why don't we work for them? I feel like I that would know. be exactly what we should be doing. We should make our own in the U.S. How would we write about, though? Literally like, anything. What if it's just a legitimate, like, just regular newspaper where it just talks about, like, the local news for that one day? <laughs> imagine how cool it would be to collect those we got a bunch of stuff we got to talk about let's, let's okay. make a google meeting we got we got some things a to couple do. Okay. different items on our agenda i'm going to close us off with two different types of calendar systems or rather just two other cultures that use different calendar systems than us uh and then i'll pass the, the baton to grace so there is the um like in islam they use the islamic calendar uh and it's a lunar system that adds up to only 354 days Uh, and shifts some 11 days from the Gregorian calendar each year. So each year it's 11 days apart. Um, And then sometimes they do add like a leap day or a leap month, depending on how they're feeling. Yeah. How are we going to catch up? I mean, how are we going to be in sync again? 
they might never be in sync. If you actually go onto the Wikipedia, they show you other cultures that don't follow the Gregorian calendar, and it shows you what year they're in and like all that stuff. It's interesting mm-hmm. to look at. It's, it's so hard to wrap my brain around. I'm glad other people are figuring this out. <laughs> I'll just say that. Right. I also read somewhere that it's like people will adjust to whatever calendar system that they're on. You know, like mm-hmm. if you move to somewhere and they had a different calendar system, you would just figure it out because everything would be in that calendar system, you know? Yeah. Um, people... People's brains are interesting that way. Uh, And lastly, China, they use the Gregorian calendar for official purposes, right? Mm -hmm. But they also follow the traditional lunar calendar, um, and it follows the phases of the moons and implements an entire leap month about once every three years. Which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, And that's what I got for you on leap years. Thanks. That was very interesting. Yes. Maybe we can... um, Maybe we'll watch a leap year. Maybe we'll go to Ireland on leap day and just propose to someone in the street. And if they, or no, we should do it in Denmark. And then mm-hmm. when they say no, which they obviously will because they don't know us, we will force them to buy us 12 pairs of gloves because then we can get free gloves. Are you in? I'm in. Amazing. See you in Denmark in 2024. I see no downsides to that. Just free gloves. That's all I see. <laughs> I mean, yes, a plane ticket, Airbnb. <laughs> The gloves, Grace, do it for the gloves. Okay. My topic comes from the New York Times Wednesday, April 21st puzzle by Brandon Copy or Copy, I'm sorry. And it is 64 Cross Neo Pagan Religion. Wicca. Yes. Oh, wait. Yes. Let's talk about Wicca. God, okay. Grace, let's talk about Wicca. I'm excited. Um, I just want to preface this by saying. I'm not an expert. Uh, anytime I do a religion topic, not an expert on religion. I should not be like your first <laughs> source of information. This is just, I'm just scratching the surface. Um, Can I not and, cite you in my thesis? No. And I'm also not going to go into um, Wiccan, like uh, rituals and ceremonies and stuff because it's different for like, you know, different like literally sex every sect is different. Yeah. So I'm mostly going to talk about like the history and stuff. And it's very Ooh. interesting because it's a really recent religion as far as, you know, most religions have been around five ever and this one is pretty new. So mm-hmm. first, Wicca, witchcraft, and paganism. What is the difference between those three? So this is from learnreligions.com. But Wicca is a tradition of witchcraft that was brought to the public by Gerald. Gerald Gardner (laughs) in the 1950s. Okay, so witchcraft has been around forever, but Wicca specifically only showed up in the 1950s. And not everyone who practices witchcraft is Wiccan. So there are people who consider themselves witches who practice witchcraft who are not Wiccan. There's also like Christian, a Christian witch movement. There is a Jewish mysticism movement. And there are atheist witches who don't follow any deities at all. And then paganism is an umbrella term that applies to a bunch of different earth-based faiths, including Wicca. So every Wiccan is a pagan, but not every pagan is a Wiccan. And the term pagan was originally used to describe people who lived in rural areas. And when like Christianity was spreading around everywhere through, you know, imperialism and stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, those people who like lived out in the country, they were the last people to um like let go of their old religions so pagan came to mean like people who didn't worship the god of abraham Mm -hmm, so there mm -hmm. we go great Mm -hmm. 
So then this information is from history.com and Britannica.com. They both have Wicca uh, sections. So that's where I got most of my information from. Okay. So Wicca is, as the clue said, like neo-paganism. It's a modern-day nature-based pagan religion. Some consider it to be a modern interpretation of pagan practices. Um, Ritual and practices differ among different Wiccans, but most do observe festivals um, that are like celebrating solstices and equinoxes. Most of them honor a male god and a female goddess, and they also incorporate herbalism and other natural objects into rituals. So it's very like has to do with nature and natural objects and like the lunar calendar and the different seasons and stuff like that okay Ooh. so there's the oh. connection there's the connection between our two topics okay yes. calendars the sun exactly. and the moon <laughs> the title calendars um and most wiccans do accept the wiccan ethical code that states if it harms if it harm none do what you will so okay there's not really like rules as you know other religions have a lot of rules wiccan religions is just like don't hurt people one of my understandings of Wiccan is that, like, it's like each sect has their own set of, not rules, but, like, practices. Mm-hmm. But um, you can be a Wic- you can practice Wicca without even being within a group of people. Like, you could be, like, a practicing witch, like, on your own, mm-hmm. um, which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, so there's no way like- to like define it because it's very it's very loose. And I think that's one of the reasons why you don't see like huge churches of Wicca, right? Because there's no there's no hierarchy system really. There's no like well, need to There there is is some hierarchy. We'll get into it. Okay. Cuz yes, you can be a witch and not be Wiccan. But you can also be Wiccan without belonging to like a coven, I hmm. believe. But okay, contrary to popular beliefs, they have no ties with Satan or devil worship. They don't even believe it. Like, that's a Christian thing. They don't believe in the devil. That's not what it's about. Um, even like, say, I'm not going to get into Satanism, but that they don't really believe in the devil either. They're just like anti-religion. Anyways, that's a different topic. But <laughs> Okay. So the rituals of modern Wiccan practice can be traced back to um, a first wave feminist, Egyptologist, and anthropologist, and folklorist Margaret Murray. So in 1921, she wrote the book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe. And it was just a book about cults in medieval Europe. And this inspired British people to like create their own covens and structure worship around her descriptions of these um, witch cults in medieval Europe. And Wicca did originate in Britain, by the way. BT dubs. Yes. So, um, a lot of Murray's claims about medieval witch cults have since been disproven, but she still did have a big influence on Wiccan rituals today. But the founder of Wicca is Gerald Gardner. He's widely considered the founder of Wicca. So Gardner spent a lot of time in Asia where he became familiar with occult beliefs and magical practices. Um, I don't know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of religions way before Wicca that have more bases in like mysticism and nature and stuff right and there's this i've read a lot about wicca um mm-hmm. one of the books that i've read is drawing down the moon by margaret adler who talks about paganism neopaganism and witchcraft in the 21st the 20th and 21st century and kind of like this expansion and this explosion of this belief system um and yes margaret murray 
she wrote these books about witchcraft and the history of witchcraft and paganism and Wicca within uh, England and Europe specifically. And she mm-hmm. basically lied about all of these like cults that used to these like witch cults that used to exist around Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this guy, this Gerald guy, he comes back from his Asia travels and he's like, hey, I'm like really into this and I'm going to like bring my own spice and like, like let's add spice to this, you know, and it's kind of like, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I whatever don't know, you, okay. I mean, whatever, as far as religions go, I feel like they're not very problematic, but. Oh, no, I agree. Yeah. Something, something to think about. Um, Okay. So anyways, he returned to England before World War II. He became involved in a coven in Highcliffe, England in 1934. And in 1946, he bought his own plot of land that was to be used as headquarters for a coven of his own. But at this time, witchcraft was still illegal in England. So there were anti-witchcraft laws in England since 1541. They had initially been passed by King Henry VIII. And basically, if you were found to be practicing witchcraft, it was punishable by death. Mm Mm-hmm. And then in 1562, Henry's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I, passed a new law that said it's only punishable by death if you harm someone. Um, If you don't harm anyone, then you only face imprisonment. So that's a trade-off. But in 19... (laughs) It's so crazy to me that they weren't repealed until 1951. So finally, these like archaic witchcraft laws were repealed in 1951. This allowed Gardner to publish his book, Witchcraft Today, in 1954, and that's when the term Wicca was first coined. But fun fact, he called it Wicca with one C, and the second C wasn't added until the 1960s. So, ooh, spiced it up a little bit. According to Gardner, the word was derived from Scots English and meant wise people. Gardner gained a lot of followers from this, and Wicca started spreading to the States in the 60s. Um, This is like an aside. Gardner died of a heart attack in 1964, and in 1973, his extensive personal collection of artifacts was sold to Ripley's, believe it or not. Ooh. So if you want to find him, ask Ripley. Okay. Um, But Gardner, like, didn't do this alone. Another big player is Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley. Yes. Oh, Gardner had met him in the 1940s, and Crowley had been doing rituals for a while. In 1914, he proposed the idea of forming a new religion that would pull from old pagan traditions, worshipping the earth, celebrating equinoxes, solstices, and other hallmarks of nature-based worship. And a lot of the Wiccan rituals that Gardner was the one to, like, actually write down came from Crowley. Did you know, as a weird aside, Aleister Crowley has a very strange connection with, what's his name from Scientology? Ron, L. Ron Hubbard? Yes. L. Ron Hubbard was really into magic and sci-fi, and he was obsessed with Aleister Crawley, and he was like a pen pal with Aleister Crawley for a long time. And, um, like, a lot of the basis of Scientology comes from paganism and witchcraft and Satanism, which Aleister mm-hmm. Crawley knew a lot about. And so L. Ron Hubbard got a lot of his inspiration for Scientology from... None other than Aleister Crawley himself, who also helped found Wicca. So just a fun little aside for you all. (laughs) These two dudes just creating religions. Yeah. Um, Okay, so Gardner wrote the Book of Shadows, which is a collection of spells and rituals and is central to Wiccan practice. It's said that some initiates had to make their own copy by hand. And the origin of the title, Book of Shadows, is unknown, but some believe it's borrowed from the Scottish children's author, Helen Douglas Adams. Okay. She had a couple different books about, like, shadows and stuff. 
Um, okay, in 1963, Gardner initiated British expat and Long Island resident Raymond Buckland, and Buckland went to the U.S. and he established the first coven there. Let's do it. Um, another U.S. person is Alex Sanders. He found a strain of Wicca known as Alexandrian Wicca in the 60s. He was like kind of a ham. He was big into publicity. He wrote a book. He made a film called Legend of Witches in 1970. And he talked about himself a lot. He pushed myths about his own lineage, claiming royal ancestry and saying that his grandmother was not only a Wiccan, but she had learned a strain of witchcraft that supposedly originated in Atlantis <gasps> and involved King Arthur in Merlin. None other. Mm-hmm. So he garnered a lot of young followers, obviously, really like, <laughs> yeah. you know, told really good stories. Um, and so people said he, they think he played a big part in popularizing Wicca in the 1970s. But have you noticed something so far? Men, 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 yes. men, 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 men. So there seems to be a lot of men involved in the beginning of Wicca. And I feel like today Wicca is heavily associated with women and feminism. And not to say that there weren't big players who were women um, in the beginning of Wicca, because there were. But it wasn't until the 70s that the American version of Wicca went from being like a magic-based pagan um, religion claiming British heritage, to being a nature-based spiritual movement with heavy tones of environmentalism and feminism. That's 1970s. That's not that long ago. No, but that was also like, it was coinciding with like this new age phenomenon in mm -hmm. the U.S. at the time. And like, yeah, this interest in environmentalism post- Hippie world, stuff. Like, it's like, yeah, exactly. Post like Vietnam and stuff. So, so I want to talk about Lori Cabot who is the Witch of Salem. Um, she was a teacher at Salem State College, and she opened one of the first occult stores in the U.S., and Governor Michael Dukakis declared her the official Witch of Salem in 1977. Yes. In 1986, she founded the Witches League of Public Awareness. But one of the most interesting stories about her is that she helped solve a murder in 1991. Okay. So this is the story. I guess trigger warning. I'm going to be talking about murder, and it is somewhat violent i'm not going to go too far into it but two neighbors went missing martha and tom tom like showed back up again and he said that martha they were on a sailboat together and martha fell off the sailboat and hit her head and you know was lost so the police tried to find her body like according to where tom said it was but they couldn't so they asked Lori cabot for help so cabot had a vision that tom had actually murdered martha and threw her off with an anchor tied to her feet and weights around her waist and the police investigated the area that Cabot told them Martha's body was, and they found her, just as Cabot described, with, like, the weights and stuff. So then Tom went on the run, but Cabot had a vision that he was in a cabin, and she cast a binding spell to make sure he would make a mistake and get caught and wouldn't be able to escape. So later, some people in a small town near the Canadian border reported a car that they didn't recognize parked outside their neighbor's cabin, even though their neighbors were supposedly out of town and also the lights in the cabin were on. So the neighbors were like, those people aren't supposed to be there. What's going on? The police get there. They found Tom. He had like shaved all of, all his hair and he was getting ready to basically escape to Canada. So. Oh my yeah. God. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so the feminist influence in Wicca strengthened in the 70s and 80s when women started entering the religion, attracted by the fact that people were worshiping a female deity, a goddess. However, the, they noticed like the religious ranks were steeped in misogyny. So in 1971, Wiccan activist Z. Budapest started the Susan B. Anthony Coven, which oh, she's amazing. 
Yes. Which practiced Dianic Wicca, which is a form of matriarchal lunar worship. Budapest wrote the feminist Book of Shadows, and a number of feminist covens branched off from this one, basically. Z Budapest. If you're interested in paganism, neo-paganism, and Wicca witchcraft in the United States, read about Z Budapest. She's amazing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, please continue. So in 1986, Wicca was recognized as an official religion in the United States through the court Detmer versus Landon. So in this case, um, Herbert Daniel Detmer, he was Wiccan, he was in jail, and he was refused ritual objects that he needed for worship. So the Court of Appeals ruled that Wicca was entitled to First Amendment protection like any other religion. So yeah, it wasn't until 1986. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1998, a Wiccan student in Texas enlisted the aid of the ACLU after the school board tried to prevent her from wearing Wiccan jewelry and black clothes, and the board eventually reversed its view and allowed her to wear um, her jewelry. Amazing. In 2005, U.S. Army Sergeant Patrick D. Stewart became the first Wiccan serving in the U.S. military to die in combat, but Mm. his family was refused a Wiccan pentacle on his gravestone. As a result of a court case initiated by the Americans United for the Separation of Church and State, Wiccan symbols are now accepted by the Veterans Administration. Amazing. Mm-hmm. It was in 2005, not that long ago. Hey, hey, hey. So I'm just going to end. Um, there's an article I read on Refinery29 called How Four Witches and Wiccans Define Their Faith Themselves by Sarah Coughlin. And um, it's an interesting article. She interviews a bunch of uh, witches or Wiccans. And the question that I found most interesting was, what do you think people still get wrong about Wiccan practices? So Thorne Mooney says, quote, I think many people don't realize that Wicca started out as an organized, initiatory, coven-based religion, and many of us still practice according to those old traditions. I'm the high priestess of a Gardnerian coven, and we often don't have very much in common with your average Instagram Wiccan. There's a lot more variety in Wicca than even other Wiccans realize. And Mm. then Laura Tempest Zakroff says, quote, that Wicca, witchcraft, druidry, voodoo, any of the pagan paths are some weird, crazy fringe thing or rooted in a Christian concept of good and evil. Honoring and respecting yourself, your body, other people, plants and animals, the environment. There's nothing weird, crazy or evil about any of that. At the heart of all beneficial spiritual paths is the message to be good to each other, ourselves and the world around us. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, um... I chose to do this topic because when I was younger, I remember being really interested in Wicca. I must have seen it like on TV or something and I want to learn more about it. So my dad took me to Barnes and Nobles and we were in like the, I don't know if it was like the occult section or the religion section, but I remember like looking at all the books about Wicca and then getting like too freaked out or scared that I didn't end Mm. up getting any of them. But now looking back, it's like, it's really not scary. I mean, it's a religion just like anything else and actually a lot less problematic than some other right i my best friend in grade school into early high school was mm-hmm. a practicing wiccan mm-hmm. um and so i was introduced to the religion very early on and um i've always been interested in it as like a result um one of the most interesting things that i love about wiccanism or neo-paganism or witchcraft is that like it truly is so different from person to person Mm -hmm. and there's people that practice witchcraft or a version of wicca that looks different than what you might expect it to look like you know they talk about in drawing down the moon by margaret adler they talk about 
there are specific groups and sects of people in the United States that are practicing Wiccan or witchcraft or pagan things, but they would never call themselves that. Mm-hmm. And it's these traditions that are passed down from women to women to woman to woman, things like different various superstitions that you might have around your household, like laying this out at night or putting this bowl of salt outside the door, or this is how you you plant plants in this kind of way, and this is how you line your property, and this is how you organize your house. And all of these things are steeped in like Wiccan or witchcraft or pagan traditions. Mm-hmm. Um but they've been passed down for so long that they've lost the word for it in a way. And so um, there's a lot of interviews in the book where people are raised in these households and they don't realize that it's Wiccan until they go away to some liberal arts school and they start reading about paganism and neo-paganism. And they're like, holy crap, I was raised as a witch and I had no idea. Mm-hmm. My mom doesn't even know that what she's teaching me is witchcraft. Um, and I think it's cool too that you can be an atheist and also be a witch because a mm-hmm. lot of people believe in witchcraft as just like a connection to mother earth, you know? Mm-hmm. And like it, earth is a goddess. It can be like a personification of a goddess, but it's also like just, you know, the world, the place that you live is your God, which I think is interesting too. Anyway, I love this topic. I could talk about it for literally five ever. So I'm glad you did it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, obviously there is, it's, you know complicated and deep i wanted to just Mm -hmm. stick to like the historical how it kind of came about Mm -hmm. um but yes it's very i mean interesting you could really do a deep dive i'm sure there's um, there's probably like a wicca podcast oh for sure i'm sure there is if you Um, know of a wicca podcast please recommend it to me because that is like so my so far up my alley (laughs) and don't be scared in barnes and nobles not that those exist anymore there is this book series of a girl who was a who was a practicing witch, and she practiced Wicca. And maybe you remember it. It's like a young adult book about a young girl who's a witch, and there's candles on the cover. It's like a white candle, a red candle, and another one, a black candle. It was a series of this girl being a witch. Mm-hmm. Oh, it scared the crap out of me. If I find it, I'll share it too. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, that's all I got. Amazing. Very good. Okay, so as promised, we have our interview with Haley Gold, the author of Letters to Margaret, which is a graphic novel about crossword bloggers told from two different points of view, but let's let Haley tell you more about it. Okay, we're here today with Haley Gold, the cartoonist behind the brand new graphic novel, Letters to Margaret. Haley, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. First and foremost, we would love to know if you could tell us about your book. This is a 128-page graphic novel, crossword-based graphic novel, in that there are crosswords integrated into the story and solvable puzzles in it. However, you don't need to do them in order to read the the story and get everything out of it because it is... Uh, all the information is placed in context if you just read the comic. It is two-sided, uh, so it, it opens from each side. You know, it's a if you you have you can if you have the physical copy, you flip it upside down. Obviously, if you have the digital copy, you can just manipulate your file uh, <laughs> to, to read how you like. And though both sides take um, take place over the same spans of time, over the same events, and approximately the same location. It is from two different points of view from the two main characters. So you see this same story from two perspectives. Um, And they, all the main characters in the story 
besides just the two main characters who are the perspectives, the other characters, well, they're all crossword puzzle bloggers. And um, if you're not familiar with what that is, it's someone who blogs on the daily crossword um, that bloggers, crossword bloggers can be for all sorts of outlets. Some are for the New York Times, some are for the LA Times, you know, uh, any kind of regular puzzle that's out there. And some of them do multiple outlets. Um, and I mean, all of the ones in the comic are not real, but <laughs> it is a, a um, variation of that phenomenon that occurs in the real life internet, which is often more hyperbolic than the ones that I portray in the comic. So what's the story about? Can you tell us a little bit about that? The two main characters that are the two sides are Margaret A. Cross. We mm-hmm. call her Maggie for short because um, there would be confusion based on a plot point I'll get on to later if, if we didn't. And Derry Down. Maggie is upset about a lot of the PC-ness being enforced by some of the bloggers, also how small her own blogging audience is, and also by her frustration in uh, her attempts to get her own crossword into the New York Times. Um, She is a sophomore journalism student at Columbia University. She she, she lives in a dorm with her roommate, Amanda Zucker. Uh, They then receive a letter from Margaret Farrer, who is the first editor of the New York Times crossword puzzle. Um, and Margaret, who has been um, deceased since the 1980s, mm-hmm. seems to be helping her in order to help her refine her puzzle to get it published. Mm. Meanwhile, on the other side of the book, and also on her side, she encounters Derry Down who is also involved in puzzle blogging and has a reverse opinion about where he does not think puzzle sensitivity has gone far enough. Um, He feels that right now, a lot of the mainstream outlets, the way they're operating discourages diversity in both the content of puzzles and the creators and constructors of puzzles. And that a lot of the content of the puzzles can be offensive and alienate people and the two of them their worlds collide that that is the basis of the story without trying to give away too much without any spoilers of course yeah yeah because like it's there's spoilers very superficially like if you really just get into the very bare bones of the story so it's a little hard to to you know get around Mm-hmm. So what made you want to tell this story? First of all, I'm very into crosswords. So that's one thing. And <laughs> Aren't <Mike> Finale, we all? <laughs> I don't know who, who wouldn't be, except for <laughs> a lot of close family. <laughs> <laughs> Writing about something that I'm already passionate about is something that clearly has a lot of appeal. Mm-hmm. Then also, though, before I even thought of the crossword element, Um, I was just finishing writing an autobiographical piece and, you know, I was thinking about what to do next. And I really just think about whatever is on my mind and what's bothering me. I was very upset about the, the division I saw in the crossword community. I wasn't going to broach it from a crossword standpoint, but that's where I, I saw it because that's what I follow. The people who, who are on both sides of these issues in crosswords and everywhere are not really willing to, to consider 
other other people's perspectives on things where like I listen to a lot of people who have divided opinions on these things and honestly if you just listen to them either side they're both reasonable I mean I'm not talking about the people who are like fundamentalist extremes mm-hmm. um like you know but I'm not gonna get into that but it's like just your average person who has like who has a measured point of view that like it's reasonable it's like don't cancel them out don't write them off listen to them and you may you know change your opinions a little bit and you may affect their opinions a little bit if you're willing to listen to them and talk to them and just try to put yourself in someone else's shoes and uh, as a comic book artist in other ways in my previous work and this one by doing it as this two-sided thing I wanted a way to force people to have to do that, to read the book. I guess I wanted to be manipulative. <laughs> so I, that's that's uh, basically how it, how it all came together. I, I didn't initially think of it as two-sided. I just wanted to explore it from, I, at first I just did one side, Maggie's side. But then as it came together, I'm like, oh, this is how I have to do this. One of the really cool things and things we found interesting about the graphic novel as we were reading it is obviously the interactive element, the solvable crossers within the book. Um, and you actually worked with Andy Kravis and Mike Selinker to construct these puzzles that are inside the actual book. I don't believe you're a crossword constructor. Are you a crossword constructor yourself? I am not at all. No, <laughs> we are not either. So no judgment there. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. Um, so when with working with Mike and Andy, did you have them insert the puzzles into the story after you had already written it? Or did you all work um, on everything in tandem? How did that work out? This is how it worked. First, Mike wasn't even involved in the project at all until very, very late in the process. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I came up with the ideas for the book, I initially only had an idea for but what happens is Maggie creates several drafts of her puzzle as Margaret helps her edit it. So there was, there's three drafts of Maggie's puzzle. And then there's uh, one other puzzle that comes in late in the story that I need. And I knew I needed all those puzzles. And I already knew the constraints and the theme for them and some of the major fill and stuff like that. So I'm like, oh, I got to find someone to help me there. And then also for the blogs, you see, you actually see, you know, the, the websites in the comic uh, commenting on particular puzzles. I wanted to have like half a puzzle sticking down into it or something like that, um, to, that will be reflective of what the characters are commenting on. Mm-hmm. So I contacted Andy and together we came up with those couple of puzzles. Then Mike, who was really acting as the publisher and editor, not really as a puzzle constructor, came and looked at this and mm-hmm. he's like, well, and oh, by the way, at the t- Andy now works for the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time he worked for the New York Times. And since these were supposed to be New York Times style crosswords, that was a a very uh, helpful thing. Um, So then when Mike looks at it, he's like, well, you know, he was interested in publishing this book. He's never published a a, a graphic novel before, but he was interested from the point of view of someone who works at a games company. 
And he's like, this book needs more crosswords to appeal to our audience. Mm -hmm. So what I want you to do is take all these half crosswords and make them into whole crosswords. And I'm like, I don't think I I can't do that. Can you? And he (laughs) said, he's going to try. So he did. Now, he's not as experienced as Andy with that. So like after we did some test solving on that, we brought Andy back into the picture and he did a a lot of revision on those puzzles to make sure they're New York Times style, to make sure the fill was good, to make sure they were fun. And that is really how that whole process happened. My future work, I'm handling the process differently now that I have more experience. Because when I went around getting Andy, it's like, I can't really afford anything. So I was very limited. But Mm -hmm. now I'm thinking broader because I know, like, I'm more, I I feel a little bit more liberation in terms of uh, getting the puzzles involved in the story and also have more interest on the part of creators now that they they see what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. So if people are interested in supporting Letters to Margaret, where can they buy the book? Where can they support the book? We had a Kickstarter campaign, which ended not too long ago. And now what it's transferred to is something called a pledge manager, which I believe I, my publisher knows more about this than me, but allows you to still do get all the perks. For example, uh, there is a mini comic available um, if you buy the book and then I think for an extra $5, something like that, which features a Robin Weintraub a Friday style puzzle. Lovely. Um, and so I think you can like piggyback on top of that. And then once the book is printed and in stock at, at the website, you can, it's no longer a pre-order situation and you'll just be able to receive it. And we're hoping to have wider distribution in stores as the year goes on and, and you know, other places like that. But the one place I'm sure you can at least sign up for something is at LoneSharkGames.com. And that's spelled L-O-N-E, like a single shark, not a, a scam artist. <laughs> uh, LoneSharkGames.com slash L-T-M. Those are the, the initials of the, the title of the book, L-T-M. There you should be able to, to get what you need. That's great. Right. So you heard it here. Head over to Lone Shark Games to check out more about Letters to Margaret. Thank you so much for being on with us today, Haley. We really appreciate you coming on and talking about your new book with us. Thanks. If you want more information on Letters to Margaret, please look in the episode details. We have linked to the Lone Shark Games website as well as the Kickstarter. You can find everything you need to know there. And I guess that wraps it up for this episode. That's it and that's all, folks. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.